Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Howdy, Happy New Year, and welcome along to episode 42 of the Howie Games. Firstly, thanks for all the social media messages at Mark Howard 03 that have been coming in. Absolutely loving that our little show has become part of so many people's holiday road trips. That's super cool. Hey dudes, Pickle here. And Big Penguin too. Happy New Year. May your year be full of, hmm, ice creams. Sick, gnarly, barrels, cuddles, backyard cricket, sunshine and smiles. And don't forget the Howie games. And Howie, you mean Daddy Penguin. Okay, Daddy, we miss you. So please come home sometime soon before (laughs) Mummy runs off with the butcher. Alrighty, fair enough you two. Talking about being away, this episode comes to you from the Ashes Test at the mighty Sydney Cricket Ground, but was originally recorded a few months ago in Kingston, the capital of Jamaica in the Caribbean. And our guest this week, Aussie cricketer and all-round nice guy, Shane Watson. 59 test matches, 191 day internationals, 58 international T20s. And Shane has played for, now wait for this, Shane has played for Tasmania, Queensland, New South Wales, Australia, Hampshire, Sydney Sixers, Brisbane Heat, Sydney Thunder, Rajasthan Royals, Royal Challengers Bangalore, Islamabad United, the Quetta Gladiators, St Lucia Stars and the Dhaka Dynamites. He's won Ashes Series, World Cups, Allen Border Medals, IPL titles and plenty more. But despite all that, I really don't think the average cricket fan knows the real Shane Watson. Hopefully, after listening to this episode, you will. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. In this chat, Shane is very open charting his successes and confronting his failures head on. He talks about his love for the game and the sheer joy he still gets from playing. Talks about dealing with the critics, of which he, it's got to be said, is his harshest, how to succeed at the elite level and how the death of mate and teammate Philip Hughes changed him. I saw Shane a couple of nights ago at a Thunder BBL game and asked him how he was going and Watto, with bat in hand and a huge smile plastered all over his face, replied simply and genuinely, mate, I'm living the dream, I'm living the dream and that is what Shane Watson's all about. No matter what he has or hasn't done on the cricket field, the fact that Shane is such a warm, friendly, positive, happy fella that makes time for everyone he meets makes him, in my eyes, a legend. Enjoy, Shane Watson. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion All right, Shane Watson, welcome to the Howie Games in Jamaica <laughs> 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 no, who would have, who would have thought? That's bizarre, all, isn't it? I know. It's all the time that we see each other in Australia, I know. In Jamaica, Kingston, I downtown know. Kingston. I, know. I appreciate your time. Um, we're, we're over here doing the Caribbean Premier League. We came from uh, Guyana yesterday. How would you describe that trip? Guyana. Mm, when we came from Guyana yesterday. Well, at least it's direct. Yeah. Compared to even um, last year in the, the CPL, some like, one a few trips. That's a direct flight is about two hours. A couple of times took us like 10 to 11 hours. <laughs> so there's a few island hopping, a few delays and all that sort of thing. So 
this year we've been looked after. We're getting direct flights, which is nice. Well, getting to where it all started, I remember speaking to Hodgie about this last year in the Caribbean, and it's the world's best job that you have, and I've probably got the world's second best job, (laughs) which is fantastic, but it's bizarre, isn't it? Hodgie told me, we're sitting in the hotel now, Hodgie told me that sometimes you felt like they're in prison and they get let out to play cricket. Um, because you, we, you just spend so much time in hotel rooms and you guys just go to training, you yeah. come back, go to training, you come back, whether it be here, whether it be in Guyana, whether it be in Bangladesh where you're off to later in the year. It's, yeah. it's a bizarre life in a way. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't explain it as jail. <laughs> that's <laughs> I know, that's, that's, um, yeah, that's hodgy to and through. But, yeah. um, look, I, I just actually see it as a real privileged, privileged life to be honest, um, and especially even now the stage of my career, that I can still play play some cricket, um, you know, chunks of time throughout the year outside of that, spend time with my family. But even when I'm away on tour, if my family aren't with me, it gives me time to be able to actually do other things to set up things for the next stage of my, you know, next stage of my life after my cricket. So, I, yeah, I don't see it as jail at all. I actually see it as a bit of a... Um, a working holiday in a, in a way that I can play cricket, which I absolutely love doing, training and, and playing, but also spend time outside of that when I'm not, we're not travelling to start building some things for the next phase of my life. Can you believe it that I, I guess uh, you're sitting here now and you've played so much cricket around the world, I guess as a young bloke, if they'd said to you now, this is what you're going to do with your life for your first 30-odd years, Shane, what's, you'd be saying, oh, just sign me up, sign me up, sign me out right yeah. now. Oh, look, there's no doubt, I know how incredibly fortunate that I've, I've been. I, you know, from a young, a young age, I remember I must have been... Well, I remember exactly where I was at home with my, with my mum. I was watching the uh, cricket, the test cricket on TV. I must have been... I don't know, I must have been six or seven or something like that, and I was watching, watching the tests and just said, Mum, that's what I want to do. Hmm. Um, and as, as mums and parents always very optimistic and say, well, if you put your mind to it, you never know what you can achieve. Um, and then to be able to be sitting here now, knowing the, the incredibly fortunate career that I had, um, you know, all around the world. Yeah, I know. Yeah, you, know, you always dream of things coming your way, but then to be able to actually live live through that is pretty pretty incredible. So where did it start for you? You're a young bloke sitting there with your mum. Were you a good junior cricketer? Were you a great junior cricketer? Were you, where were you in that uh, scheme? I was always a good junior cricketer. Um, you know, I always I made representative sides you know, in Ipswich from uh, a pretty young age. I made my first well, first representative team when I was 10 um, in Ipswich for you know, under 11s and under 12s. Played my first, um, made my first uh, state team for Queensland when I was when I was 11 for the under 12. So I was always a I was, I was always a good um, yeah good junior cricketer. Um, you know. I'd, like I was back then, I was trying to bowl as fast as I could, <laughs> um, which my back, my body didn't agree with, surprisingly. Even at that age. And, oh yeah, I got my first stress fractures when I was twelve. Did you? Yeah. So um, yeah, and th- but that's all I wanted to do. I wanted, I wanted to be the best fast bowler I could be. I wanted to be Craig McDermott. He was from Ipswich. That was my, you know, was my idol growing up. So I wanted to be Craig McDermott with the ball and you know with the bat. I wanted to be a mixture between Steve Waugh and Mark Waugh. Wow, you're aiming pretty high there. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so. Yeah, so I was always a, I was always a good junior cricket. I always absolutely loved it. And like my dad, I got the passion of the game of cricket from my dad. He um, he's a cricket tragic. Um, he even with the, the ABC cricket books, he'd um, after a, like a day's test, he'd see the paper in the morning. He'd he filled out like those scorecards. Did he really? From, yeah, from you know before I was born. So um, yeah, my dad just you know loved cricket. So he you know, he up until I think it might have been probably five six years ago, he was the um, coach slash manager of my team when I was um, playing under 12s 
and he he still did that up until about five years ago. Did he? What's your dad so, doing? So Bob Watson. Right. And what was so, what was Bob doing for a crust? Uh, dad was in the um, in the air force. Right. So um, he was a um, uh, F one eleven um, radio technician. Um, on the flight line, so he did that for for twenty years. We moved around once when I was um, four, moved down to Adelaide because that was where he got posted, and then he got out of the air force after when I was eight. And we moved back to Ipswich, and he just worked as a on the flight simulator F one eleven flight simulator technician there for up until he retired. So right. um, he he moved around a lot when he was young because his parents, well, his dad was in the air force, so he didn't want to do that to because he found it difficult, especially mm. with. The education system, different education systems around Australia. So he didn't want that for his kids. He wanted a bit more stability. So he ended up getting out and just working at the um, Air Force Base out at Amberley near Ipswich. So um, yeah, so um, he he did that. And Mum worked at um, Ipswich Grammar, where I went to school at the accounts office. So um, yeah, Mum and Dad worked incredibly hard to um, put my my sister and uh, me through um, Ipswich Grammar. Um, both boys and girls grammar so you know to give us the best opportunity in life that's what they wanted a good really good solid education as a starting point so mum and dad made a hell of a lot of sacrifices um, growing up to be able to give us that opportunity it's funny isn't it because you're a, a father of a young family now like I do and you know we're starting already thinking about school and you just know at the time your kids aren't going to appreciate it but now you look back at what your parents did for you whether it's putting you through school or driving you all around the shop to cricket games yep. it's an extraordinary thing you folks do not that you realise at the time no, you'd certainly take it for granted. Mm. Um, but it's not until, yeah, you become, as you said, you become a parent yourself where you realise the sacrifices that that your parents make to give you the best opportunity in your life. And then my mum and dad were incredible, whether it was um, the sacrifice they made from a financial point of view to, to put myself and my, my sister through school, but also then the, the time they put in mm. to be able to drive me all around, the, not all around... Ipswich and Toowoomba and um, Brisbane and that to be able to get me to to my games every games every week it's a huge sacrifice that they were so selfless and never ever complained never at all they just they loved being able to see um, give you know their kids the opportunity they could you're talking about playing school boys when did Shane Watson make his first hundred um backyard doesn't count yeah no backyard no um Oh, the first one I really remember, I made a, a few school hundreds, but the first one was for um, Ipswich against, it was um, uh, Brisbane North um, at, the, at that time. So How old would you have been then? Uh, I was 11. So, And right. the great thing back then, um, <laughs> if, you made, if you made 100 um, for, for Ipswich, you ended up getting, they gave you a free bat. Well, they bought you a bat, so that was part of. Um, so that was always a thing that you strive for. Right. So I ended up getting a, um, a Slusinger Bradman. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, was it 99.9 or something like that bat so that was yeah that was awesome because mum and dad couldn't you know I had a decent you know I always got looked after okay but you know mum and dad couldn't mm. afford afford that to that extent so um yeah I remember I remember that like yesterday was that with the did that like have the purple markings on it yep yeah yeah, yeah I like maroon. had Bradman written yep, down the back it. of it yeah so he got that as a freebie yep. nice nice yep. and how were you tracking at school at this stage were you, were you a good student or, or I always worked hard the one thing that um Mum and Dad always instilled in me was to, even though I love playing sport, whether it's you know, cricket especially, but rugby and, and other sports, they always were adamant at me to, to make sure that I studied and got the best out of myself at school. So, yeah, look, I, I studied hard. I got the best results that I, that I could, yeah, yeah, which... Um, you know, I got, a, I, got a decent, I got a decent pass mark from Year 12 because I, 
I might, yeah, I, st- I studied as hard as I possibly could, whether it was at school getting, you know, teachers to tutor me on subjects that I needed help with or right. just, you know, always made sure that I put aside the time that I needed to to study for um, when the exams came up, even if it meant that, you know, I didn't miss training sessions, but it meant that yep. I had to cut them short at times to make sure that I, I studied as hard as I could. And what path were you going down, cricket aside? Was there a, did you have a profession in mind? Uh, not a specific one, no. Oh, that's the, the reason why I did a, f- um, after I finished school, I, I studied full-time for a year at QUT um, and I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, so I did business and human movements. I did a double degree because right. I, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I loved sport. I loved the human, you know, the human movements aspect. But and did we complete those? Or oh no, I, I did it. Well, I finished the first year, <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> and I passed all the subjects. Right. So I did that. But then um, the next year, then I got the opportunity to go down to the cricket academy, which, um, you know, which is my which was my dream. That was like the next step to get closer to. You're getting getting closer to realising my dream of playing. How do you Australia. find that out? Do you get a letter or a phone call? Or so I found that out through. So I played um, Australian under 19s. I played the World Cup in Sri Lanka. I think it was yeah 99. Well, what was that like? Was that your sort of first overseas trip? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah, right. it was. So that was oh, that was awesome. So you get off the plane in Sri Lanka, is yeah, it? Yeah, Colombo. Yeah, it was awesome. Rod Marsh was our coach. Um, had. In that team, Mitch Johnson, we had um, Nathan Horrocks, Michael Clark was the captain, um, Andrew McDonald, um, Ed Cowan. Oh. We had a we had a we had a good team. We had a, we got knocked out against India in the in the semi final. Surprisingly, we got spun out. Who was the star um, of the team? Who was this bloke's going to play for Australia in that team? Um, well, there's a there's a few. Obviously, Michael he ended up only being there for a couple of games. Yeah, because he ended up going back and playing Shield cricket because um, that was a priority. Um, at that at that stage over under nines, which it, which it should which it should be, because mm. that's the next. Yeah, you know, that's what we aspire to. That's to be able to get closer to the next level above that. Um, but obviously, obviously, Mitch Johnson was a was was rare. Was he fast? Yes. Was he? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Under under nineteens, he was just he was naturally gifted at bowling fast. Um, yeah, Nathan Horrocks had played under nineteens. I was the under nineteens year before as well, so he was he was very skilled. So um, you always could see the guys. We had, we had, yeah, we always could see the guys who were going to yeah at least play first class career because they were very very skilled. Um, but yeah, Rod Marsh was from that moment being the um, the Australian nineteen coach. He was incredibly good to me. Um, he was always very supportive. Always went out of his way to help me um, develop my game. And that's where he talked to me at that at the Aussie under nineteens about potentially being um, going to the cricket academy, which was just my ultimate dream <laughs> to be able to live, breathe, sleep cricket for four and a half months. So um so yes, yeah, so he talked to me when I was in Sri Lanka about going along which I was just and then I got a call at home in Ipswich to confirm it, which I was just <laughs> i at that moment I thought I'm gonna do this has obviously been a factory which are the best Australian cricketers that have come through for so long. Um, and I'm just going to do everything. I'm going to take in everything possible to give myself the best chance um, to see how good I could be. If it's good enough for Ricky Ponty and Glenn McGrath and all those guys to develop their cricket, then it's, it's good enough for me. Just talking to you about it now, um, and you, you, you don't really know from the outside looking in, but when you're talking about school and you said taking everything in at the academy, it sounds like you're a sort of leave-no-stone-unturned <laughs> style of operator. Yep. That's how I suppose. That's just why do you laugh? In, why do you laugh? Well, that's in well, it's it's a good observation, I suppose. But that is exactly how I'm built, um, and that's 
I think that's always been inside inside of me, but also that's what my mum and dad always reinforced to me as well. Is if you can't leave anything to chance, you've mm. got to you've got to work really hard to give yourself the best opportunity. Um, and that's all that I've ever done is just to be able to do everything I possibly could to get the best out of me. Whether that was from a cricket point of view, whether that was just being a really good grade cricketer. Um, or whether it was achieving my, my goals and dreams of playing for Australia and, and playing well for Australia, I just got, I just wanted to do everything I possibly could to be as good as I could. It's funny that because from the again from the outside, like you look at Mark War, who I've got to know in the Big Bash, and it seemed to come so naturally for him. Also, watching you play cricket, it seems to come so naturally. But obviously, there's a natural side to it, but there's a hard work side to it as well. Yeah, well the. The, nat- the natural component is obviously just your natural athletic ability, um, which, you're, which you're born with, and you develop that as well as a, as a young kid. And I played all different sports. So I developed all different athletic components to my, you know, to my body. Yep. Um, but then, yeah, absolutely, it comes down to hard work. It comes down to being able to um, you know, keep refining your technique, keep developing your technique, keep developing your different, you know, your different skills. But also a lot of it comes down to having the right coaching as well who, and people who are able to spend time with you developing aspects of your game as well because mm. without that and the right advice and someone putting the time in with you, you aren't able to continue to improve and see those improvements all the time, which in the end it just it compounds itself. When you see that little bit of improvement, that makes you jump out of bed to, to go to training the next mm. day to continue to see that improvement. Well, we've skipped ahead a bit here. At what age did you start to think, righto, maybe I could be a professional cricketer? And was it something you can chat with your parents about or just naturally evolve? Um, look, when I was 16, I made a... I made a call to just not play rugby in year twelve um, at Ipswich Grammar. Which rugby union, rugby union, yeah. So and that didn't go down well at the school because I was a I was a decent rugby player. I played, I'd played, I was in the Queensland country squad um, to play in the Australian Championships under sixteen. So I was a decent rugby player. I certainly wasn't. Um, yeah, I wasn't. I was a flanker in number eight, so I wasn't big enough, as in tall enough and and big enough compared to the people I was up against. But I was a decent rugby player. But then. Um, I'd just seen too many bad injuries playing, whether it's knees and, and shoulders and, and that sort of thing. So I just, at that moment in time, I just wanted to give my cricket everything I could, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't want to have the you know the chance of a bad injury would just set me back a, you know, a year or so in the crucial you know, development stages of my cricket. So at that moment in time, that was when I made the decision I want to give cricket everything I can, and again, whether that was being the best grade cricket I could be, but that was when I was like I want to give this a shot and see what I can do um, with the with the dream of you know making those next steps Australian 19s the cricket academy first class cricket and then and then playing for Australia um, but that was a moment where I was I was willing to sacrifice and take heat from a school because rugby was a you know as a was a big thing at, at Ipswich Grammar mm. so um, to take a hit from the from the teachers and the rugby yeah, staff and all that sort of thing, not to not to make myself available to play, but you know, mum and dad was one hundred percent behind me. We talked um, about the trip we made yesterday, and I downloaded Watto, your book, which is a good oh, yeah, read. Okay. So uh, it came out two thousand eleven, I think. If anyone yeah. hasn't read it, they should yeah. read it because it gave me a great insight to you. Um, you're a, a Queenslander, but your first opportunity to play first-class cricket was down in Tasmania. Mm. Um, I was surprised by the amount of stick you copped by Queensland cricketers and Queensland cricket in general to make that mm. move. That actually hit me right between the eyes. Mm. Yeah, and 
I suppose that was a re- reason why they were so good as well, Queensland, for that period of time. There's a incredibly strong era of Queensland cricket because they were like that. No one left, right. even if you you know were in and out of the team, and um, so why did you're you pushing for selection? Why did you make the move to Tassie? Oh, because I was well, I was not I was 19 and. The, the Queensland team was so strong and yeah. had a lot of senior players as well, and they they never and they didn't need to blood any young players at all. Um, and the opportunity to go and play the back end of the season for for Tasmania um, and guaranteed the back end of the season, so it was five Shield games and five One Day games. I wanted to, my goal was to play for Australia. Mm. Not like of course I would love to. I'm Queenslander through and through. I would love to <coughs> play for Queensland, of course. But my my mind was further you know further above that, so it was like, well, I I need to play first class cricket. I want to play first class cricket, so I might have to wait here three or four years at least to be able to get an opportunity. And this is right on my doorstep. So for me, it was even though you know it didn't go sit well at all with Stuart Law and Jimmy Marr and and Bennett King, who was a coach at the time. I, I, there was there was an, it was a very easy choice. Even though, yeah, my first game was against Queensland. That Down was that before. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a baptism of fire, which is a great thing. In what way? Oh, I copped it. Did you? Yeah, and fair enough. And fair <laughs> enough. Um, but it was a great. It couldn't have got any more difficult than that for my first game. So it was a great way to start. Um, but at that time, there was no rookie contracts. So like I was just playing. Um, grade cricket, playing second level cricket for the academy at that stage. So, you know, you were able to move um, during during the season because, you know, there was no rookie contracts. You weren't tied to a, a, a state. Um, so rookie contracts came in a year, a year after that. So that wasn't able mm. to happen during the season. But, um, but yeah, it was just a, an amazing opportunity. And, um, you know, I'm incredibly thankful for... It was Greg Shippard who really took that, took that risk. Um, to be able to get a 19-year-old just to bring him down into a team mm-hmm. and play me straight away, um, it, was a, it, was a bit, it was a risk. There's no doubt, but um, I loved it. I bet you did. Was yeah. it a big? Was it a big contract? Or would have been your first? I didn't. Oh, it wasn't a contract. I right. just. It was just a guarantee. It's just match payments, yeah. Right. So then it meant that off. I think if I played three Shield games, I'd have got the base contract. Right, which would have um, been twenty-two and a half grand. Did so, you blow it? Did you no, buy anything? No, or no, no. <laughs> right. no. I was mum and dad always brought me up to not blow it on buying right, a car right. or anything like that. So no, it was no. Did I you just have a car in Tassie or not? Yeah, I took my um, '86 model Mazda 323 <laughs> down there. <laughs> did you take it across on the so, ferry? Did you? Yeah, I got it. got it sent down. No, I didn't take it down. Right, so right. I got it sent down. Right. Um, but yeah, no. Mum and dad always instilled in me that you know the priority is to be able to you know put your money away to buy a house. Um, or to buy an apartment or whatever it was. So that was the thing before I ever bought a car or bought anything else. It was to part from a, a, a place that I lived in. Right. Yeah. So things go well for Tasmania. When do you first get the opportunity to play for Australia? I presume it was a one-dayer. Would have been your first time. Yeah, well, my first, my first um, time to, to be in and around the Australian team was a test tour. Right. So it was um, in South Africa 2002. It was more so just to be around the Australian squad. Um, not, I was a 15th man in the squad, right. more so just to be able to find my feet in around the, the squad and the people to then look to play me in, one, in the one-day one um, games at the back end of that tour. And what's that like when you get on a plane and there's sort of Ricky Ponting and, and oh, Gilchrist? And... I was crazy Steve Waugh. Steve Waugh, Steve right. was a captain of that, yeah, the captain of that, um, of that test team, so, and Shane Warne. 
Matt Hayden, Justin Langer. There was it was. So what's that like? It's awesome. Is it? <laughs> it's like surreal. Like to be able to I remember walking into the um, into the lounge um, before before the flight took off and just seeing all those guys there. It's just like I've been watching on TV. I've been watching them all on TV for so long. Um, so to actually, yeah, I felt unworthy. Really, that's what it was, and it took me quite a while to be able to quite a while a number of years to actually feel like I was worthy enough to actually be in that um, within those you know around those caliber of players and yep. people because the skill that those guys had I was a realist I knew where my game was at huh. mentally and and technically compared to those guys so it took quite a while to be able to you know feel like my skills were getting closer to be able to not match it with them but contribute mm-hmm. it's funny you mentioned Ricky when he first came into Channel 10 to do the Big Bash, we were all like, oh, jeez, it's Ricky Ponting. And, mm-hmm. you know, have this persona of, and I know he's a very, very close friend of yours, mm. but he, he's one of those fellows when you get to know him, he's the world's nicest man, but he's got that he's got that aura about him. And I imagine Steve Waugh even more so, and, and mm. Warney as well. Yeah. Oh, look, Ricky, my first my first um, time that I had anything to do with Ricky was, um, obviously, he was one of my favourite players. There's no question. And playing in Tasmania, we had a pre-season tour in Adelaide. Um, and Ricky came along to play a couple of those games, and Greg Shippard knew how much I, you know, loved Ricky, so he actually got us to um, room together. <laughs> so I walked into this the room in Adelaide. I don't, I think it was a Stanford, not, uh, not it might have been the Stanford Plaza or one of those. Walked in, Ricky's just sitting um, at the at the um, at the table, and I was like, I can't believe this is Ricky Ponting. <laughs> and that night. That night, he's sleeping in the bed, like obviously next to me, because our two just twin twin beds. I did not sleep a wink. <laughs> I was that excited. I was like, I can't believe Ricky Ponick's sleeping in the bed next to me. This well, is ridiculous. Jump in, give him a well, no, not that much. <laughs> I wouldn't have freaked him out like that. But I was just like, this is the coolest. This is the coolest thing alive. So, um, and he just from that from that moment, he just went out of his way to look after me, and he always has. He. he it, the support that he gave me from you know, from that moment, I think I was might not have even been twenty. The support that he gave me was just over the top for someone who you know, obviously the caliber and stature of the game and legend of the game that he that he was and is to be able to take me under his wing like he did. Jeez, yeah, yeah. not many people have that opportunity. I'm, I know how incredibly fortunate yeah, I've been. More of what I in a moment. Next week's episode features an athlete who is on the brink of retirement. Sam Groff is a professional tennis player who has played his guts out on courts all around the world. He's achieved some great successes, notably in Aussie colours. But Sam has led a life on tour that you don't generally hear about, a life where you don't have the money and success of Federer, where you don't fly first class like Nadal, and when you can't afford an entourage like Djokovic. Sam explains what life on tour is really like and talks about his biggest battles being off the court. And I was on a pretty solid bender, to be honest. On the um, source? Yeah. And, you know, it, it, yeah, a lot of stuff, to be fair. Right. Um, you want to talk about that or you don't? I'm no, kidding. I mean, it's, it was, it's, it's, no, I mean, it wasn't, uh, it's interesting. It's not something I really look back on too much now. Um, I think it was pretty amazing with what I went through that I got to the point I did afterwards. Mm. Um, because at the time, I didn't think I'd probably come out of it. Uh, and I think there was a few people probably pretty worried about me who were close to me. 
That's Sam Groth next week on the Howie Games. And before we get back to Shane, if you guys could do me a small favour this week and recommend the podcast to one person, just one person who isn't aware of it or who may not even know what a podcast is and get them on board the Howie Games. That would be epic. Thanks in advance. Alrighty, back to Watto. You talk about trying to, it took you said, a couple of years till you felt worthy to play with these guys. So yeah. when you play your first one day and you're struggling to feel worthy with your own teammates, which everyone goes through in a stage of life, mm. what's it like when you walk out to face the opposition against, was it against South Africa? South Africa, yeah. So Shane Watson, debut game, he's out for two. Court gives Bowl Pollock. Yeah, look, I was, <clears throat> I was okay because I was batting at seven. I think I was batting at eight at that stage, so I wasn't, didn't really get much of an opportunity with the bat um, to really expose where my game was, my batting skills were at. So my, my first opportunity was really with the ball. That was a you know, major reason why I actually got picked in the team because I was a, a fast bowling all-rounder. So uh, from a bowling point of view, I was obviously incredibly raw. Um, you used to bowl fast. They used to bowl 140 plus. I used to try and bowl as fast as I could. Yeah, yeah. I was mad. <laughs> um, and and that was, you know, I was able to bowl. I wasn't, I certainly wasn't... Um, I certainly wasn't a wicket take. I didn't do anything with the ball apart from angle it in, which is to good batsmen, that's what you like. Mm. <laughs> Out of the pads. Um, yeah, that's right. Just angle into the to the stumps. Um, but I was able to do like do okay, do okay. I was able to hold my own okay. Um, I, I'm enough. I'm in mean, that you know, incredible side that I was playing in. But I was. Yeah, it was difficult playing against in the team. I suppose the teams you always played against certainly didn't have the calibre of players as no. the Australian team did. So, of course, I was still really good. There's no doubt in the opposition I was playing against. And I did get exposed you know, a few times. But um, it was more so just the feeling in around the team, just knowing that so many legends of not just Australian career but world career were playing in the same team as I was a developing 20-year-old. Huh. I realised where, where I was at compared to them. What was Warney... What was his strength? What made him so good? Like, we, we sit and watch it on TV and marvel at him, but why was he so good at what he did? Um, well, his, his natural his skill was a starting point. Like, to be able to bowl leg spin, which is the hardest thing in cricket to do, and have that much control is... It's it's freakish. There's no there's no question. Um, and then also just his, his inner belief in his ability. Um, and just... And that meant that every time he stepped onto the ground... He just knew he had it over everyone he played against, hmm. and he, and that's how he that's how he held himself, and that was the reason why he dominated up until he, he retired as well, because that was the inner belief that he that he always had, um, and yeah, it's 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 cra- it's crazy to see like it was crazy to see someone with so much skill, and um, and also Warney was someone who um, who took me under his wing to be honest from from the age of twenty. When I first came in the team, especially from a cricket point of view, um, he was he went out of his way to look after me. Um, you know, he got me along to to go and play for Hampshire for a couple of years when I replaced him when he was playing Test cricket. Um, then you know, Rajasthan Royals I had four years with him there. He I was really on the scrap heap at that time in when I was 27 when the IPL started, mm. and he you know brought me into to Rajasthan and continued to educate me in, in cricket uh, cricket especially how you can uh, tactically skill wise so he was just over the, again he, there's along similar lines of Ricky went up over and above what they you know what they can do to be able to you know to have helped me so you, you, I can see the like the, the way you talk about these guys and you still almost you got awe in your voice now do mm. you feel comfortable that you sit amongst them as a teammate now looking back on it all 
Um, yeah, look, I I realised that what what I what I had, um, you know, there hasn't, and at the time I, I didn't. And it's not until probably later on, and at times from a career I did. There's not too many fast bowling or medium pace no. bowling all rounders that come through because it's 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 difficult, demanding. Yeah, it's um, you know, physically it's physically it's very demanding. How you split your time to be able to become really <clears throat> like as good as you can at both aspects. You know, not many people, not many people are willing to to do that because it does. You do have to split your time up at training. Um, whereas you know, people who spend all their time just batting, for example, obviously become very good at batting. Yeah. But to be able to then um, divide that up into your bowl, your bowling skills, and then obviously your fielding as well. So yeah, it's it's a demanding it's a demanding thing to take on, which is a reason why I suppose a number of times. Is a reason why it's valuable, so valuable to teams because there's just not many that that come along. So that's what I know. It was just by chance that that was what I was, which is what cricket and teams, you know, are really are looking are looking for. So I was just fortunate. I was just the right place at the right time. When do you find out that you're going to get to play Test cricket for Australia and sit back and think, well, I was telling my mum as a seven year old that's what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, um, geez, that must be good. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, that was. That was, you know, always, always my dream was playing again, getting that baggy green. Um, so yeah, the, I was think I was, well, I was on holiday. I was on holiday in between, um, yeah, in between the shield season that and that stage um, during the Christmas, and got the call that I got to go to, you know, come to Sydney because looking like I'm. I might be replacing Darren Lehman <laughs> in the not exactly the, like for long yeah. <laughs> in the uh, in the Test squad anyway. So, um, oh yeah, that was. Yeah, crazy time. It's crazy just to think that the dream that you've just had in your mind that you wake up like every day dreaming about it for such a long time is actually you're hmm. close to realising it. It's a pretty pretty crazy thing. During your dad? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mum, mum and dad like the sacrifices you know, that they made, but but also mum was a mum was a really good swimmer herself. She just missed out on uh, the Olympics. I think it must it must have been. It's been the 76 Olympics. Okay. Um, so she was a freestyle. So she got close to being able to you know, represent Australia but just but missed out. So, um, yeah, that just from a family point of view was the realisation that I was, I was able to just take that one step more as a starting point um, was, was special for our family as well. So what's it like, test cricket? <laughs> a serious test. Yeah. Of everything that you got. Is it? Um, you know... Technically, it's a it's a test. Physically, it's a it's a huge test. Um, mentally, not even just on the field, but off the field, it's a it's a test as well. How do you mean? Um, mentally on the field, just knowing that you you got to be on at the right moments in time to to perform your best and not expose yourself and the team, which is your country, um, and re- the realization of that. But then also off the field, playing for Australia, there's when things are going well, it's easy because you're you're on top of the world, you're flying, mm. there's no problems. But when things don't go well, which is sport life in general, when things just don't don't aren't going your way, you're not performing how you how you want, it's incredibly challenging because you you're moving, you feel like your dream that you've always you've had since you're a young kid and you're living it is close to being taken away. And that just you know means that you're absorbing a lot of not of not letting go of that, which mm. in the end 
I always put so much, I always put a lot more pressure on myself because it meant that much to me, which meant that I was moving further and further away from actually when I'm at my best. But that's all, you know, all I knew. So it just let, meant that much to me. Let, let's start with the positives. What, tell me about your best days playing test cricket when things are working for you. Is there, is there times or innings, <laughs> there bowling performances or wins where it's all going your way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's especially as, a, as an all-rounder, those days are just... Can you recall any of those days? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like you know, from a batting point of view, um, yeah, the, the, it's more so the days when I when I perform well and I scored runs, um, and that's normally, especially when it's consistent runs as well. You just you're starting the game every game just on top of the world, and you take you can take on the take on the bowls from from ball one when I was opening the batting. Well, you went through that period when you opened the batting when mm. you seemed to make fifty every time you'd walk yeah. to the wicket. Exactly, and that was just the you know the confidence I had um, with with my game and the bowls that I was facing, uh, the matchups that I had. But then knowing that that I could go out and, and bowl and take some key wickets as well, and yeah, that was that was the ultimate. That's what mm-hmm. you know being being an all rounder when you're able to when you have those days and those games where both aspects click, you def you feel like Superman because you can you can contribute, you can significant significantly contribute to any aspect of the game at any moment in time. Um, so that's you know, that's the incredible feeling they have as an as an all rounder. Um, but then, and one side you know also if, if one doesn't go well that day, you still have an opportunity to have an impact on the game, um, even if one aspect's not really going that well at that moment in time. So tell me about your first Test hundred. I can remember. Your yeah, first Melbourne. Test yeah, um, you had a couple of close close calls. Yeah. Oh, look. I, I look back at like my just my cricket and how it developed and. The, um, a hundred was always like was bred into me that that was the that was the ultimate. Of course, it is as a as a batsman. Yeah, yeah. The hundred is, but the more it got built up from me and everyone around me, the more I would I saw that it was just the ultimate goal and that's it. So, yeah, I always struggled when I was like eighty and nineties because it was just I wanted it that much that then it took my my mind moved forward instead of staying where it had huh. to be, which is being present, watching the ball and reacting. Yeah. Um, and you know that that pattern just continued through you know through my career really, um, and that was a perfect example. And leading up to the first you know, hundred and boxing, the Boxing Day Test was you know, I got eighty odd, what, ninety odd in um, in Adelaide, um, and the same thing again. I just I, my mind had moved forward because I was just like that excited about you know making a hundred for Australia. <laughs> As you would be. Um, yeah. So, and that was just the that was the thing that I just didn't. I never really understood how how to keep my mind you know to really keep my mind present so then 100 is just was just a number and you move forward because your, your actual goals a lot more than that mm. um so oh the build-up to it like just boxing day tests like playing a boxing day test was the ultimate you know my dad and i used to sit down um you know at a holiday house at um at brunswick heads growing up in the north coast of New South Wales, just watching, watching the Boxing Day tests on a snowy, snowy TV. Mm. So to be able to actually play it, and then uh, missed out, ended up getting run out for ninety odd with um, Cato, and I had a had a mix up in the first things, and that was on Boxing Day. Um, so then to be able to score a hundred on on Boxing Day, but the build up to it, same thing again. It's just mentally, it was more so. I was just, 
having a fight between myself, in especially when I got closer to the, you know, into the nineties. So what's and going on in your head? Oh, it's just Are you talking it's to yourself. Con- well, yeah, it's a constant battle. It's like, oh, geez, I'm nearly there, and instead of going, no, don't do that. You can't. You got to bring back. So it's just a, and that was just, you know, some guys. It's just naturally easier for them just to fight through it, and they don't. Than even bad an eyelid, whereas yeah. for me, because of you know the expectation was built up around it from a young age, yeah, it, was a, it was a battle <laughs> in, my, in, my, in my mind. It was so then to yeah you know, then to be able to to be able to get it and um, yeah, of course, it's those, those days you just want to you want to press pause and just stay there for as long as you can. Did a catch go down? Yeah. I got, yeah, I got dropped on 90, was, I don't know, it was 99 or 98, right. 97. Oh, yeah. Oh, it must have been 99, yeah. The, a big, A big, um, a quick bowler, I think it was the only test he played. It's a point, and I don't know why he's fielding a point. He <laughs> sliced one to point, he spilled it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, it was never, yeah, I didn't make it easy for myself. You've won... Um I like to stick on the positives. I'm not big on negatives. You won, <laughs> you won World Cups as well, and there was the, the World Cup um, in the Caribbean. You would mm. have won that World Cup, but then being involved with the World Cup at home. Mm. One of the most amazing things I've seen in cricket was, and you'll have to fill me in, um, you facing Wahab Riaz, mm-hmm. and it was like test cricket, but it was played as a one-dayer, mm. and he was all over you. You didn't get out. You went on and made valuable runs. To me, that was like almost the essence of cricket. I, mm. I guess you don't realise that at the time, but it was scintillating to watch that. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, I look back at it and I see, I see that moment in you know in the in the World Cup as well for for us. Um, and you know, we had I had Steve Smith at the other end who was just like, bro, it's like Wahab Riaz was bowling 130 k's. Yeah. But as soon as I came on, there's like he was bowling 190 k's at your head as well. <laughs> so um, and look, I. I didn't know the Wahab could bowl that fast. Right. I'd, I'd never really... I'd seen him bowl a little bit, but not much, but I had no idea who could bowl that fast. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have poked and prodded him when he batted if I knew he could bowl that fast. What do you mean, poked and prodded? <laughs> so he was he was batting... Um, obviously, we're on, we're, on, we're on top of him, um, and Wahab came in to bat, and Mitchell Stark was bowling to him. And I, he played and missed it, I reckon, nearly every ball in one over. Mm. So I... Um, I ran, I ran past him. I think I was move, moving from mid wicket to slip, and um, just mentioned to him if he um, if he had a hole in his bat, um, or and he thought it didn't matter what he thought I said, which he thought I said, "Are you holding a bat?" But it didn't matter. It was the same intention with what right. I was saying. Right. So then, obviously, he was charged up because I like you know we're all sort of at him a bit when he was batting, um, and yeah, as soon as he as soon as I came out as well, he was. It was extraordinary. He was, he was up for it, properly up for it. So yeah, and I certainly, you know, I, I had my luck. I had my luck in a big way. Whether it was getting dropped at fine leg, whether it was there's a number of balls that came off the shoulder of battle and the gloves that just dropped down. So, like that day was just that night was just you know, meant to be for me. Um, with just the things that fell my way, there's no question. But oh yeah, that was yeah the most yeah the most intimidating spell that I'd faced for a, like for a long time. Just how the pace, but also how accurate his short balls were. Mm. Normally, yeah, you, know, you get two short balls and over, but they were, there was four at least on like on the money. So you just had no no real respite. Well, do you feel? I don't mean in that instance, but do you feel fear? Have you felt fear when you've been batting before? Um, at that moment, 
at that moment not really because I just the the enormity of the game uh, you know a knockout game in the World Cup at home sort of quarter final yeah quarter final yep. yeah so that 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 didn't come into consideration but look I didn't have fear honestly up until um, Phil Hughes got killed um, you know fast bowling was always was my was my strength of playing. Um, and of course, when there's really fast bowling, so someone like Brett Lee or Shahbakt or someone bowling a really fast spell, you know you have to be on, otherwise you can get hurt. But it wasn't until yeah, it wasn't until Phil I was you know I was fielding a first slip when Phil got hit. So it wasn't until that moment then fear oh, came into my game massively, and that was um, you know one of the reasons why my against fast bowling and my career my performance with the bat started to really dive because I had no idea how to deal with it, um, and. And I'm, you know, I was fortunate enough over after about a year of trying to deal with it that I ended up going and you know, talking to a performance coach about how to um, how to deal with it. More so, just putting the right things in my mind so the wrong things don't fly in at that moment in time. What are the wrong things? Uh, short ball. Right. So as a cricket, as a batsman, if you're thinking about the short ball, then one, if it is a short ball, you're going to be slow because you can't. It's not a. You can't think about playing the short ball. You have to naturally react. It's a natural, instinctive um, shot because it's just not to think about and play. You're just not fast enough. Mm. Um, but then, if it's not a short ball, then I'm in, you know, in a bad position to get yep. out LB or caught, you know, caught in the slips or something like that. So it's just that's the not the good thing to have in. So it's putting the right thing in my mind, which is watch the ball. Um, so the wrong thing can't fly in. So I've got more chance of actually dealing with it, with the fear that and the anxiety that would always build up. You mentioned what happened to Philip, um, and I can ask you about it. It's more really how you want to respond to it. Um, you don't expect to go to work anytime it's anyone killed. Yeah. How did it affect you that, that the fact you're on a cricket ground and one of your mates ended up not leaving that cricket ground? Mm. Um, Is that right to ask you about? Yeah, that? of course. Like, um, yeah, that, that the the innocence of the game of cricket went immediately. Um, I always, I always, I always knew that you could get hurt playing. Of course, it's you know ball coming down really fast. I knew that if I got into a bad position, I'd get hurt. I could break an arm. I could you know get. I could if a ball went through my, my helmet, I could fracture my you know fracture my face or you know my eye socket or jaw or whatever it was. But never like never ever contemplated that you could actually get killed. Um, so that like, it was. And the realization for me, I had you know, a two-year-old son at that stage. Um, Will was Will was two, um, and just the thought that went through, like, continued to go through my mind for a long period of time. Is what happens? That was me. Like, what happens to my family? Um, not just my mum and dad, but yeah, my wife and my and my son. Um, so that's where, just subconsciously, the fear just continued to be there for a long period of time. Um, until I've actually really understood how to how to deal with it, um, to be able to then, well, one talk about it as a starting point, because mm. I could not, I could not talk about it. If anyone ever brought it up or anything, I just shut it down. About what happened? Oh yeah, anyone mentioned anything, I just after obviously the the week of the funeral and around that after that, I just I couldn't deal with it, so I just shut it down. Um, couldn't deal with it because you lost a mate or because it could be you or a combination of... yeah combination yeah absolutely right. yeah 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 so um and then from a playing point of view that was when you know i had some more understanding of how to um how to 
deal with the fear that I had. Um, and as soon as I had a more of an understanding of that, then things shifted significantly because even though I knew, you know, there's always going to be anxiety around that from, you know, that experience that I had, I had, you know, I had ways of dealing with it and putting the right things in. What type of ways? Well, just the perspective of it um, and understanding that it's a, you know, such a, a, you know, such a rare but tragic event that that doesn't, you know, doesn't happen often at all. Um, And then the perspective of, is there safety measures now in place to be able to help eliminate or try to eliminate that chance of that way of getting killed? Um, and then the other thing is just relearning how to play that how to play that ball. Um, so they were the steps that you know I got put in place. I ended up I ended up going. I met up with a. I randomly went to the Dally M's, the Rugby League Awards, yep. which is I don't normally go to those sorts of awards. And I was sitting next to an IndyCar driver, Aussie IndyCar driver called Will Power. Will Power. Sitting next to him, just obviously by chance, and I ended up start talking to him about, like he'd won the IndyCar um, series a year before. Yeah. Just talked to him about how cool it is to be a racing car driver. It must be the coolest thing alive. And he actually opened up to me and said, you know what, I've had adrenal fatigue. My body's, my body's shutting down. I've got huge anxiety getting to the car. Wow. Um, my mate last like last month, my best mate got, got killed. He goes because indie cars just aren't that aren't safe no, compared to you know compared to other um, other events and other cars. So he said, so I'm like I've got a fear that's going to be me. Um, and that from that instant, that was just it was like a um, a light bulb turned on. I was like, you know what? That's along similar lines. I've been trying to deal with things for the last you know for the last year. And I said, how are you still getting in the car? Um, and he said, I've got, um, I've got this, there's a performance coach in the US who's worked with, you know, huh. F1 drivers, IndyCar drivers and um, NASCAR drivers and fighter pilots and um, uh, like SAS, special operations, um, um, soldiers. So this guy just gets how to understand, how to focus on the right things because uh, with some of the people he works with, if they're, they're not on where they need to, it's going to be fatal. So um, I was like, well, that's exactly what I need. I need to just go and find this information if it can help. If it can help me, even if it's not for my career, and I've got to retire now because I've just there's no point just dwindling out. Um, or or um, so if it can help my cricket now, or if it can actually help my coaching, or what I want to do in the future. So I connected up with this guy who's based in um, North um, Charlotte, North Carolina. Flew over to see him. Spent a couple of days. You flew over there. Yeah, yeah, a couple of days seeing. Um, Going through his his like his framework and his process and understanding it all, it's just a game changer. So um, and it's just the understanding of how a very simple understanding of how your mind works for good and for bad, um, and then been able to, um, which just meant that I was able to have put the things steps in place to be able to deal with it. Um, and from that moment on, I've been able to talk about it very openly because I understand right. I can put things in place, whereas before I could not talk about it because I had no mechanism in place to be able to deal with it at all. So um, that's the that's a beauty of life. You know, people just come along at a certain stage in your life where it's just the right thing at the right time, which is exactly what happened. You know, the chance the chance meeting with Will. How, how do you immediately go and play? I'm just speaking to Brendan McCullum, and they were in playing somewhere in Dubai and they oh, decided yeah. not to play mm. the next day mm. like, how do you how do you deal with it with you and your teammates when you find out that that Phil's actually passed away yeah 
well, you deal with it well as you can. Right. Because it's such, you know, it's, it's never happened to, yeah, you know, it's never happened to us as a, so you just do, you deal with the situation and circumstances as well as you can, supporting each other, trying to deal with it, you know, deal with it yourself as well as you can and your family and everyone around you. Um, yeah, you do, you do the best of the situation that, that you possibly can in dire circumstances. Um, and that was, and in the end, we had like we had no choice. We had to go back. We had to go back and play. Mm-hmm. You know, we, Cricket Australia was. It was great that they gave us a few days grace to be able to just try and just give us a little bit of time. Um, but in the end, looking back, n- you know, no time was a good time no. to play again. <laughs> to be honest, unless you actually fully had dealt with it and um, and understood where you know the, where the fear was at, how to how to absorb it, how to turn it into the the right thing that you need to perform. Yeah, never, there's never going to be a good time to actually start again. So yeah, you have to get back onto the field as soon as you can. But oh, the, like I remember, like as yesterday, you know, the first ball that Mitch Johnson bowled to Vera Coley hit him like mm. the badge really hard. Far out, that was like that was yeah. That just brought back you now memories, you know, straight away. It's like, geez, this is this is not this is not good. As in. I definitely, I know I haven't dealt with it, but you know, I just got to get on with it. Isn't it bizarre? Because if it hadn't happened to Philip, if Mitch Johnson hit Coley on the badge, you would blokes would have been all over him. How quick's he bowling? How short? You know, you're on the back foot. You're scared. But all of a sudden, I remember Mitch himself talking about it. He's hit a guy, and it's a completely different reaction. Completely different reaction. Yep. That like that was. There's no doubt. Normally, if someone like Virat. Yeah. Who you know, where we know how important he is to a team, and he's got serious, serious fight in him as well. Um, you know, would have been would have been all over him, like you know, like Mitch Bowling during the Ashes. We were all over all the English guys when Mitch was doing what he was doing. But that moment, yeah, the energy changed massively. It's like oh, this is not. Like, we don't. Want, this is not good. Is he all right? Yep, absolutely. And you yeah. can see, like, I'm sure the footage would show us, like, running up to him straight away, checking if he's okay. So um, and I know that you know I know that moment was a was a I think I think was a bit of a turning point for Mitch as well. Yeah right. Um, you, you know you smoked the palms five nil. You won a what was it like winning a World Cup at the MCG? Your home World Cup. <laughs> Look the two the two huge highlights in my career. Yeah. No question was winning the Ashes five nil. Yeah. That was the that was the first that was the first time before the, before the World because before the World Cup. Yeah. That. I felt and we all felt in the team that all of Australia was totally behind us 100%. Yeah. There was no there was no sort of people just having little snipes at it, individuals or the team sort of here and there. Like everyone walking like in the lead up to every game around the ground during the games, the support was outrageous. So that was like Sydney winning in day, on day three <laughs> was just, oh, that was... Incredible. The unchangeables too. It was the same. Team yeah, that's right. Through. That's right. Yeah. Um, but then the world. Then the World Cup. Yeah, you know, from from I think early twenties when you knew that the huh. World Cup was going to be at home in twenty fifteen. Man, I was going to be around nearly thirty four. It's like well, imagine if I could get to that. Like being, playing, still playing for Australia around you now nearly thirty four. Um, and a World Cup at home. Imagine you know a final MCG. All those things that you'd. You'd see it as this dream dream moment you'd love to be a part of, but then to actually realise it and win it was just oh yeah, it's a, that's another moment. Can you recall the roar when Mitch Stark knocked over? Oh, yeah. oh, I've never heard the MCG like that. 
I know. Oh, yeah, that was... Yeah, absolutely. That's just... There's a few moments during that game which were just, like, so clear in my mind. Like, I can, you know, I can press pause at any time and just, you know, feel that moment, and that was certainly one of them. What's another one? Uh, during that game... Um, this is like cricket porn now. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, the, the winning, the winning runs. Yeah. You know, with Steve, like hugging Steve Smith, like at that at that moment, seeing the ball, like seeing a ball go to square leg behind square. Yeah, I, absolutely. But the, and the other moment was walking around the field with Mitch, Mitch Johnson, especially just yeah, bathing in this incredible achievement we've been able to you know bring to bring together. Because obviously Mitch Johnson is one of my, you know, one of my really good mates I've been playing with since I was seventeen. So to be able to share that moment with him was very cool. Very cool that I recall Buff sending out a photo of all you guys holding up the Herald Sun front page with you all celebrating on the front, mm. with you guys looking at the paper. At, I don't know, four a.m. in the morning in a hotel somewhere looking like... Was I there? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think I saw Buff after about right. three o'clock. Right. I was freshening up. Well, not freshening up. <laughs> Not freshening up, but <laughs> yeah, I think I missed a couple of hours of some, yeah, pretty crazy. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> the flip side of it, mate, is, and you mentioned that the whole country was behind you, and as someone that works in sport a lot, I, I always try and deal in the positives. I don't really like dealing in the negatives, and that's half the reason of this podcast, but it comes, what's it like when it feels like the whole country is saying, Watto's injured again, or Watto's broken down. <laughs> yeah, it's well. That's just the. I just. It's I not your fault. It's, it's like it's not your fault that you're injured. You can't do much about it when you're injured. And you did everything. You know, you had your own physio and everything. Yeah, yeah. You, you did everything you could possibly do to stop that happening. But it's it's almost like a throwaway line. Oh, you know, Watson's broken down. What's yeah, bloody Watson doing? soft. Yeah, Watson soft. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, look that and that. Look, that took its, that takes its toll, isn't it? There's no question, especially when I know that I, I, I'm desperate to get the best out of myself. And yeah, there's no no doubt. Like looking back at times, I made mistakes, as in like my training regime and the things that I was doing, as in overtraining, because I was that just that desperate to get the best out of myself. That's when you had muscles on your muscles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so of course that it was that was tough because. It was people. It was like people were having a go at at me personally, and questioning whether I was work like whether I was actually well I had any meals, whether I was working hard enough, and that I actually wanted those injuries to come about. Mm. Um, so that that took that took a while. It took a few years yeah, at bet. least to be able to understand how to deal with it. Um, and there, there's no doubt. There's there was my, there was there's one moment in particular um, during the Ashes in twenty uh, two thousand. 2006 um, where I was, in, I was injured again meant that I ended up missing the whole the whole Ashes series because I picked you know for the first test match and got injured just before that and that was gosh yeah I, I didn't I didn't I was in an apartment, apartment in Brisbane I hardly left my house for a couple of weeks because I was just ashamed like I couldn't look people in the eyes because everyone was saying what's wrong with you now um, is it your shoulder is it your back is it your leg like and I just couldn't deal with it. I didn't, and I didn't know any other way to deal with it, because again, as I said, like I was just doing the best. I was trying to get the best out of myself. I wanted to be the best fast bowler. Mm. I wanted to bowl consistently 150 k's. And you felt shame. Yeah, yeah, because mm. people were just like, "What's wrong with What's wrong with you now?" And I couldn't, I couldn't at that moment in time. I couldn't, couldn't deal with it. So, um, 
Uh, but that's 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 life. That's how that's how life pans out. Life yeah. is never. You're always you grow up thinking life's this fairy tale that you read in the books that it's it's always happily ever after. As in, it just goes from when you're born, everything smooth sailing until until you pass. Mm. But that's that's not what life's about. Life's about the the good times, the challenges, which make which galvanise you and you make you so much stronger. Um, and learning experiences you gain out of those not so not so good times. So I wouldn't have it any other way. Last week's ep of the Howie Games featured Winter Olympic gold medalist and superstar Lydia Lasilla, the toughest athlete one could ever meet. You look back, in particular when you reflect, you realise how fragile that moment is because any you're so fine-tuned as an athlete and any little thing could really throw you off and being mentally tough at that point is key. Being kind of impenetrable, you know, is key. Impenetrable. Bulletproof, you know, and that's why it's the, the whole battlefield, like, scenario. You just have to believe that you're, you, you've got what it takes. You have to believe that you're in control and, you've, you know, you've got that confidence about yourself. That's Lydia Lasilla last week on the Howie Games. Thanks to everyone who has got in touch, by the way, regarding personal Howie Games-style podcasts. So if you have someone close to you whose story you would like documented, send us an email at thehowiegames at hotmail.com. That's Howie, H-O-W-I-E, thehowiegames at hotmail.com. Now, these aren't for broadcast, but one-on-one chats that I will conduct with someone close to you whose history and story you want preserved for posterity, something for your family, friends and future generations to have as a keepsake. Alrighty, let's go back to Shane. We don't all live under the same microscope. Like, we don't get... Um well, my job's a little bit different, but the, the average punter, because I tell you what, I get some criticism along the way. <laughs> yeah, There's sure. no doubt about that. But the average punter, no one celebrates that he's done a magnificent job getting the ledgers to balance as an accountant that day, but he also never gets, when he gets it wrong, the entire country getting stuck into him. So it's... Yeah, but there's a significant upside. Right. Significant upside as well. Yeah. Like that's, that's why I don't... I would say, oh, I don't want the bad times, but I'm happy to take the good times. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's a significant upside. There's no question. Um, whether it's, um, you know, the incredible earning capacity that we're so fortunate to have in this um, era of cricket. Um, whether it's um, the incredible opportunities that you're able to have, the people you're fortunate enough to be able to meet, um, the opportunities to travel in different parts of the world and see some things that you never thought, like I'd never would thought that would be possible from a guy a young kid growing up in Ipswich so oh there's so much upside as well which I'm not I'm not I'm happy to take the downside because the upside right. um is is so you know so fortunate as well so yeah I'd, that's that's part that's part of the journey upside um where'd you meet your beautiful wife <laughs> that's what I was about to say I was actually about to mention the upside right, and that's right, one upside right. as well is you know the fortunate thing to be able to meet quality people yep. and you know my wife my wife certainly where'd you meet um, we actually met through um, Brett Lee one of those one of my you know one of my best mates he was one of the greatest men on the planet yeah one of the um, he's very fortunate to um, yeah to he his um, ex-wife um, had, had got to know Lee a little bit and just thought that it'd be, we should get together um, and go out for you know, a dinner and see see if things would work. Just thought it would be a good fit. Or double date. Yeah, double date. Right. So, are, you, are you shy in that situation? Um, I was at a stage where I wasn't overconfident, but I was more I was content where I was in my okay. life, as in just personally, not as in <clears throat> overconfident or thinking I was 
was God's gift. I certainly never never been that way, but more so, I was at a stage in my life where I was um, content where my life was at. As in, I had you know, other things outside of cricket. I was you know just happy in general, in my, you know, with, with where I was at. So um, I was very you know I was open to mm-hmm. to meeting someone, especially the the caliber mm. of, of Lee as well. So um, yeah, so we ended up just you know going uh, meeting that night. And then I had to, within a week, I think I had to go to Malaysia for a, for a one-day tour. Um, and it was actually a really good way. I ended up, you know, we talked most, like, just about every night. She just started at Fox Sports at that stage as well. Presenting. Yeah, presenting, yeah, on the um, the news channel. So she was pretty busy, but she had some late nights up talking talking to me as well. Um, so we really got to know each other over the phone while I was, you know, away in Malaysia. And then we had a... Um, the 2006 Champions Trophy in India as well so I was away quite a bit at the start but we were able to get to know each other you know on the phone um you know before it was really face to face as well so look there's there's no question that she's been and he's one of the most important people and has been in my, in my life the stability the strength that she provides um the way she challenges me as well to you know to be the best person I can be and also the incredible mother that she is as well with um Tim you know the two kids is just I'm incredibly fortunate. How do you maintain your privacy when you're a very high-profile person and then your wife's a high-profile person, you know? Like every time you're in the supermarket, that Leighton's broken up with his missus for the 38,000th time. <laughs> yeah. or, or it's all truth. Jennifer. It's all yeah, truth. Yeah. How do you steer clear of that? Because, I, I, you know, I haven't spent a great deal of time reading those magazines, but I'm sure at times the Watsons mm. have appeared in them. We Honestly, we made a conscious decision for right from the start to to not go out of our way to expose ourselves. Right. Um, understanding that, you know, those, those things are available if you want, if you want, if you want them, but if they, if you take them up on it, then it means that your life's theirs. Right. Um, if you know what I mean. So I if you, you know, if people get paid to, to do those magazines and that sort of thing, then, then you're their property in a way. So when things are going well, great, but if things don't go that well, then, You've got to take that side as well. So we just made a conscious effort from right from the start that we we're just going to, yeah, we we're going to be private. Um, we we're happy to talk about, in general, about you know about our lives. That's part of being, um, you know, in the public in mm. the public um, spotlight. And I've never shamed away from you know hiding hiding things away. Um, but you'd, you've always got to just you know maintain that privacy as much, and hold on to that for as, as much as you can. But accept that that's just you know part of the. You're part of the upside and downside of um, you know living living your dream. You got a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. How did it, how did it change your life becoming a dad? Look at the smile on your face now. Yeah. And how difficult is it away now that you know yeah. my my two I haven't seen them for two weeks. Yours you haven't seen them for even longer than that. Yeah. Has it changed you much? Well, it obviously has changed you as a person. How's it changed you? Oh, it changes yeah. everyone. Well, your priorities shift. Yeah. It goes away from you, just you and your your wife, and that's all you. That's all that matters. Um, how much time did you used to have? Oh, and that's the thing. Well, it's just perspective, and you don't realise how much time you have at the time. It's no, like, let's just go and have lunch for three hours. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> with no strings attached. Oh, imagine that. Imagine that. <laughs> I know. I know. And, it's, and you tell people, you tell people the time. Like now, it's like make the most of it. But yeah. You don't stay. No, no you, you don't know. So you, you can't. You, yeah. Um, but look, I, your priorities significantly changed, only for the better. It's the. It's it is the most challenge for me. It's the most challenging thing in my life, as in kids. Yep. But it is the best thing in my life by so far because mm. every kid's different. There's no manual to be a parent. Yeah, I've read a lot of books and 
but every kid's different. So you read all these, the generic books, but then it says, but every, because it is, every human being's different, how they react, their emotions, everything, mm. how they're built, just totally different. So um, so it's a, it's a challenge, but a, a great challenge just to trying to be the best parent, trying to bring up the best kids that you possibly can, giving them, you know, the best opportunities for their life. Um, and yeah, it's the, oh, it's a, the best thing in you know, in my life, and you know, and I know for for Lee as well. How do you go when you're away for periods like this? I know. <laughs> and if you and if you, well, if you ask every dad, yeah, it's like the first couple of weeks is yeah, first couple of weeks is like oh you got your like yep. you, you got your time back, mm. um, but then it goes from that to being oh I'm missing so much at home. Mm. Like even now, like is my um, is Lee's birthday yesterday, so you know and birthdays at, at home at a special time so you know you just miss those those moments with your, with your kids I missed the book parade yesterday with my daughter dressed up as Thing 2 and my son dressed up as the Gruffalo <laughs> the Gruffalo, we <laughs> love the Gruffalo and the Watson yeah. family yeah, that, that, that's, you know, that's... <laughs> yeah but that's the thing that's a like there's no doubt I miss you know I, I miss a lot of a lot of you know key yeah. you know, big moments in you know, my kids lives at this point in time but I also know that it's a. I'm happy to make the sacrifice now, even though, and especially the longer it gets on a tour, for example, like it is now. I, every time, I, every day I wake up, every just about every moment, I miss them more and more because I know how much I'm, I've, like I've missed their life. So when I get back, they'll be you know different kids. Yeah. Um, but I know it's a sacrifice that you know I, I, I'm very happy to make for my family to continue to set my family up because at some stage soon there's going to be a time where my cricket playing days stop and then I can be more, you know, more full-time, you know, with, with my kids. Which we'll get to. Um, you've been very, very good with your time. Um, you got another 15 minutes? Yep. Where we got? Yeah, um, absolutely. The other night I was getting excited in commentary because I was ready to watch it back and I said to Mark, which you beside me? <laughs> Watson's coming out. I was excited about as well. This. So my question is, um, you know, this will be played during the Big Bash, so it'll be three months ago, but you got run out. Without scoring, um, you don't need to comment on it, but it wasn't your fault. You got run out. Um, <laughs> still, after so much cricket, is that, oh, okay, I've got to get on with it now? Or do you sit there still in the chain rooms all that night going, I can't believe I got run out to zero? Um, honestly, the thing the thing that drives me the most is, is being around and trying to help be around a team that's successful. That's the thing that drives me. Of course, I've always got the, the personal pride and ego that I've got to mm. want to perform every game. So, of course, that when I don't perform, it doesn't sit well with me, and that's why I'm always finding ways to get better. Didn't sit um, well even with me. Now. I was getting yeah. excited about over square leg but, six stuff. But for me, it was, yeah, it's the thing that excites me playing now is trying to be, is being involved in, in teams and team dynamics and help try and develop wherever I possibly can teams that are able to be successful because that's all, like, I love seeing people get the best out of themselves. Mm. So whether it's individually, whether that's collectively as a team, and that's why you know when things don't go exactly to plan like they have here in um, for St Lucia, it I, I can't sit back and let and let things just you know peter out and mm. just go you know well that's just just not a great year this year. I'm always trying to you know find ways and talk to you know individuals, players, and and the coaching staff and that just to try and help out because. I just I want to see people succeed and help. Yeah, you know, that's what I've been fortunate enough to be around so many incredible people and incredible cricketers. That I know I've got a lot of uh, information inside of me that I absolutely want to pass on. 
the IPL is extraordinary and it, it's come at a good time for you in your career. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Warner, you went to Rajasthan. I don't think you probably got paid very much. You won it and you did really well. Now, at the last IPL auction, um, I'm sure it's public record, but you're getting paid somewhere in the vicinity of $2 million, let's say, for six or seven weeks' time of cricket. Does that blow your mind? Like, does that money go into your account? Um, I don't want to talk specifics here, but <laughs> does it blow your mind how much you can get paid to play cricket these days? Like, you, you went down to Tassie and you're on match mm. payments and now you're playing in India for six weeks and they're paying mm. you a couple of million bucks? Mm. Oh, it's, it's crazy. There is, <laughs> there is no question. Um, and... I just, yeah, I, I just feel no. I just feel incredibly fortunate. There is no doubt, and I do never. I never take this for granted. Right. How fortunate I am to come through at this era of cricket, not just Australian cricket, but era of cricket, where the players can get paid incredible amounts of money. There, is, there is no doubt. And you see, you know, when I first started playing, there's um, you know Glenn McGrath and Steve Waugh and those guys, and understanding what you know what they went through when they first started playing. Yeah, there was no, there was no, there was match, there was no contracts. There was no injury mm-hmm. payments. There was no, there was no nothing. There's hardly, you know, the match payments are very low. So, and because I've had that education from when I first started, I never ever take it for granted how fortunate I am to be able to play and get paid rid- ridiculously well. And compared to the real, compared to the real world, outside of the sporting world, to be able to, you know, to be able to make good money takes like nearly six six days a week of yeah. a lot of hours every day. But you are elite at what you do and elite business people are making that amount of money. Elite people, you know. So, yeah, some, but yeah, yeah. I, I, I understand what you're saying there, but it's still compared to like going from being a cricketer to then going into the business world mm. where you have to start from from scratch there's quite a bit of there's quite a bit of a distance gap yeah, there, there. Is, there. Do you is. know what I mean? So um so that's where yeah, elite in one one format but in one component of your life. But that as an athlete, that stops at some stage. You don't just build on top of it and it can keep going up until you're sixty and mm. you have a, a long you know, a really long career in that regard. So you just gotta make the most of it while while you can. You don't have your guitar here because you're focusing on other things. We discussed that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've seen you play. Actually, um, I remember you singing Stand By Me last year with me on the beach at St Kitts when we were doing <laughs> something for the CPL. Um, I'll find something on YouTube which I'll be able to play to the good people here now. Do you want me to sing it? Yeah. All right. When the night has come and the land is dark and the moon is the only light we'll see. If, you're, if Shane Watson's walking in to sing and play one song in front of, I don't know, 100,000 people at the MCG, what's he going to go with? Just you and your guitar and a microphone. What are you going to play? Me and my guitar. That's a... It's a tough question because it depends on the songs that I'm learning I'm learning at that moment in time. Okay. Because um, I, you know, I go through waves of which songs I absolutely love. And, you know, that... The current one that I, I love at the moment is a, it's like an acoustic version of True Colours, which is out of the uh, movie The Trolls. Right. That um, Justin Timberlake and um, Anna Kendrick sing. So I've seen the film. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it a number of times. <laughs> yeah, I've but seen I, it a I few absolutely times. love that version of the of the song. So um, that's one that I'd been yeah been learning to to play. So it just depends on that moment in time, but. People might come along. Right. Have you played in front of a crowd? Have you played in front of a crowd? Oh look. Yeah, like smallish, small crowds. Right. Um, yeah, you know, I did the. Um, I played 
that same song Stand By Me at the IPL launch one year um, in Dubai. At the launch? Yeah, at the launch, yeah, with Shari Khan. So, um, so I'm I'm confident enough that yeah that and it doesn't it doesn't really it doesn't get to me because I've played you know I've been playing the guitar and singing for for quite a while so I've practiced like I do I don't do thing in, things in half. No, so. I, I gather that now. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah, so I, I make sure that I get I get decent I get decent at it. So. Um, but oh yeah, I love I love music. I love um, yeah, everything about it. The way it can take you to, no matter what's going on in your life, can take you to the that place at that moment, that very moment in time. Mm. And that's a beauty beauty about music. As we let you go, there's a lot of um, I know a lot of people listen to this with their kids on the way to swimming or tennis or cricket or footy, which is really cool when they message you and tell you that you know they're listening away. Mm. If there's a young person in the car or on the train listening that wants to achieve something. Um, what what advice would you give them? Um, just understanding that you don't get you don't achieve your, your dreams without a hell of a lot of hard work and and sacrifices to be able to channel all your energy into um, into that very goal. There's a lot of distractions out there um, to pull you in different directions. So you just need to be very focused on what your end goal is and work incredibly hard to that. Um, but then also the realisation that things aren't exactly going to go to plan every time and understand um, that you've got to enjoy enjoy the really the good times when things when you have little breakthroughs, but also when things don't go exactly to plan as well, use those as, as um, a learning experience to be able to try and eliminate or reduce that chance of that happening you know, in the future. So, um, but if you, if you do have that work ethic um, and that you know, very strong desire and focus, you absolutely, you absolutely can you know, achieve whatever you set your mind to. What are you, Star? I appreciate your time, and may you not get run out next time I commentate. Appreciate it. Great to chat. Yeah, Good on you, mate. Thanks, Star, mate. Cheers. Shane Watson, brilliant cricketer, brilliant bloke. Thanks to Shane for being so open and honest. May he go on playing for as long as he wishes. That's about it, really, for another week. Thanks, as always, for listening. Give someone you love a hug this week. Back with Sam Groth next Thursday. Until then, peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. Listener.